God reveals his truth to us through stories, especially the true stories and fictional parables in his word. And some of the stories he tells us are scary. Horror is God's idea, and he often uses this to prepare us for real-world monsters and dangers. Yet we've all seen or heard horror stories that are too disturbing. As a result, Christians often shun this genre. But how do darker stories help us flee toward the light of Christ? (laughs) This is Fantastical Truth the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical, including horror stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell. And whatever you do, don't go down that dark hallway and open that door because this is episode 132. Do Christians really need horror? I would group this as one of our keystone episodes. We want every episode of this podcast to be very important and helpful to Christian fans. But we also have this ongoing series going on, Zach's idea, called Fiction's Chief End. It's uh, not an ongoing series like we do it all at once. We just stop by every once in a while and add to it. You can get the full series link in our show notes. This episode builds on that. It also builds on our ongoing series, Monster Month, on Fantastical Truth. We are doing that seasonally because as we record... October 2022 has begun. The spooks are out. The horror is a creeping into your TV screens and onto bookshelves everywhere. And of course, that raises, again, a lot of questions among well-meaning Christians. Do we really need this or is it too dark? Isn't horror satanic? We've previously looked into whether Christians need genres like fiction altogether or fantasy or science fiction genre. And we've looked at the primary role of the Christian reader as a worshiper, not just someone who's entertained or learning from these stories. Now we're going to go into the horror genre in this episode. Yeah, this is an interesting genre for me, Stephen, because I watched a ton of horror before I started following Christ. Um, and I, I think anyone who's gone through childhood trauma is is pretty drawn naturally to these kind of stories. Um, I used to go to haunted houses. I loved Halloween growing up. I was just totally into this genre, and and then after becoming born again, I just kind of drifted away from it, sort of like with fantasy, where I'm like, I don't know if I, if this is good or not. But now I I keep coming back to sort of dip my toes into this uh, dark ocean of uh, scary books and and films. So I started wondering why, like, what what is the appeal of this? Am I just returning to my pre-Christian <laughs> carnal interests? Or is there something important about horror that instinctively I knew then and I know now? And so this is my episode to sort of unpack that and really dive into what is good about horror. We're going to have a huge concession stand and it's not even <laughs> trick or treat season yet. We'll get to that in just a moment. I wish though first to concede that we have stopped by this topic many times already, certainly at lorehaven.com with articles about horror and particular horror stories. There are lots of novels labeled horror in the Lorehaven Library, a listing of all Christian-made fantasy fiction we can get our hands on, but it's certainly not the dominant genre among Christians. Uh, Fantasy is run away with that award by far. A close runner-up, or actually distant runner-up, would be science fiction at this point. Uh, And then all the horror and paranormal stories kind of get uh, put in the corner, uh, even among the uh, comparatively small or uh, nichier appeal of Christian-made fantasy, certainly newer Christian-made fantasy, Uh, It just doesn't have the appeal to Christian readers who are looking for these kinds of stories as other stories. And that's just a reality that we're dealing with here. We're not complaining about it. We're not challenging it. We're just observing that. 
Uh, I would actually put myself in that category too, uh, Zach. Um, we do have horror episodes here at Fantastical Truth. Uh, we've talked with uh, Mike Duran, who writes some horror slash paranormal stories. Uh, he was in a previous episode. We'll link that in the show notes. Uh, one of my favorite episodes in our first year, 2020, in the fall, uh, we talked with Jeffrey Ryder about Dracula. And of course, we're going to have a spiritual sequel to that episode in our next episode. But because, as I mentioned in our previous episode with uh, Morgan Bussey, the author of the Skyworld series, uh, because I'm a Christian, I don't watch horror. Well, at least I thought I didn't. I don't watch The Walking Dead, and I'm being, of course, facetious there. <laughs> Christians can watch The Walking Dead with discernment, you know, and after the kids have gone to bed, most likely. Although, if your kid watches Walking Dead and has no problem with it, you have probably some kind of prodigy on your hands. Personally, though, with the exception of Dracula, uh, of which I've become a huge fanboy of late, and it's certainly nothing like the movies. If you haven't read the book, uh, you need to join our book quest that started this week in the Lorehaven Guild. More details later. With the exception of that, I don't read horror books. Uh, this does not naturally appeal to me. I don't watch horror movies. I haven't grown up with them. I just am completely agnostic at best about those. Uh, I, there is an anime series called Attack on Titan. It's basically ish The Walking Dead. If the zombies were like, you know, these gargantuan giants who are running around devouring people instead of biting them. Uh, it really is quite grotesque. And there's some uh, certainly creeping dread in that series. That's probably the closest I've gotten. Otherwise, I prefer horror as a seasoning. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, I don't mind if there are horror elements in a story that could be classified in another genre. Um, my go-to example there is actually the Return of the King film from Peter Jackson. He's a horror movie director. Lots of big budget directors got their start in the horror genre, and so did he. And yet The Lord of the Rings is not a horror story, but there are elements of that. In Fellowship of the Ring, you get the horror of the ring wraiths, and they're creeping into uh, the town, and they're about to stab the beds, and you get this sense of dread, and your spine tingles a little bit. And then later on in Return of the King, uh, Frodo has gone up the steps to Minas or the steps before Minas Morgul. And uh, he's suddenly ambushed by Shilob, uh, the giant spider, uh, the spawn of Ungoliant of old. And it's definitely many horror moments, including jump scares and creeping dread and suspense and all of that. That's what I mean by seasoning. And that's my preference there. If you have enjoyed those moments in a book or in a movie, then you have, in a sense, enjoyed horror. It doesn't mean that you had to pick the book from a shelf that said horror on it with a sticky label. Uh, it's probably already seasoning in stories that you enjoy, too. So in that case, this episode does apply to you. Yeah, so I'm going to go and open up our concession stand with a lot of pumpkin spice uh, products uh, on the shelf here. You know, the first thing I want to say is I'm not an expert on horror. You know, I'm, I'm, think, I'm glad you mentioned Mike Duran. Mike Duran wrote a really good book called Christian Horror on the Compatibility of a Biblical Worldview in the Horror Genre. And that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today is what is the relationship between horror and the Christian. For other treatments on different types of horror, you know, the philosophy of horror, the textual criticism or whatever of horror, uh, that's not really our forte here. We're, we're not a, um, you know, we're not literature profs or film critics. We're mostly talking about what is the truth in this genre that is relevant for Christians. And so we're going to be talking about the horror genre more broadly. And we're going to obviously recognize there's some unfruitful uh, examples or uh, of this genre, but we're going to defend it as a good thing overall. 
Yeah, and we're going to start with a quote that actually Zach found uh, from the deepest, darkest recesses of the internet. <laughs> actually, it's an evangelical horror story on its own that we won't go into here. I need to set that up a little bit, though, in just saying that I think a lot of our listeners, Zach, and that may include you, faithful listener, I think a lot of our listeners more have this creeping suspicion that there's something wrong with horror uniquely, like anything with the horror label on it is probably corrupt in some way and it might be you know we'll get to that but i i think that's more of a meme that we've caught it's not like we've heard a preacher in a pulpit or read a quote somewhere from somebody saying horror is bad that's more of those things that we just assume and that may be correct about some horror stories but zach found this quote from a um rather a defrocked uh, ex-evangelical leader homeschooling uh, patriarchalist sort now he actually was a patriarchalist saying right out loud uh, what people suspect silently and he said quote horror is an example of a genre which was conceived in rebellion it is based on a fascination with ungodly fear it should not be imitated propagated or encouraged it cannot be redeemed because it is presuppositionally at war with god end quote uh he was pretty clear about that uh, this particular chap in another uh, area of that article, he actually was saying, well, horror is basically as unredeemable as porn. Oh, wow. And I go, no, porn is unredeemable. Horror has its roots in Judeo-Christian worldview. As I'd like to point out, even the warning in scripture, which repeated, which is repeated in a wholesome book like Pilgrim's Progress, a warning that says, flee from the wrath to come. That is a horror story in micro hell and damnation and the judgment of God, the righteous wrath of God is itself something to be feared that ought to drive us into the light of Christ. And so in that regard, you can say, no, you can't say horror is unredeemable. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that just goes a little too far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely movies that I've watched, Stephen, that I would say that entire movie is not redeemable. <laughs> there are a lot of movies I regret. And again, a lot of these I watched before I knew the Lord. Some I've watched after, I'm like, I'm not ever watching that again, and I, I wish I hadn't watched it. A lot of horror stories are just too ridden with idols. Uh, some are what people call torture porn. Some of it is just truly demonic, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I think this is part of what makes Christians uncomfortable is like, well, how much of this movie or how much of that movie is helpful for the Christian? And Again, we're, I'm not going to defend certain movies that I think we all have kind of our boundaries and our different convictions, and those definitely have to be respected. You always follow those. But again, we're, we're going back to the genre. Is the genre itself redeemable or is it not? And we're arguing that it is, or is part of our culture. It's part of our media. It's part of our political landscape. How many political campaigns have you seen that are horror stories? You know, if you don't vote for this or stand for that or pay attention to ABC, then XYZ horrible thing will happen to you. Yeah, that's why I think spooky season coming <laughs> before election season is just about appropriate. Uh, you get occasionally specific call outs in some of the political uh, TV ads in America. They show the, uh, the bad candidate in creepy black and white photo. They've managed to catch just the right ghoulish expression on his face uh, when he's on the speaking circuit most of the time i just laugh at those regardless of whose side they're coming from because frankly zach you know some candidates some public policies really are horrible and they ought to warn us away yeah and you know i think there's also a lot of horror that is just for the purpose of producing fear and saying that there's no hope and that there is a lot of nihilistic nihilistic however you say that horror 
that yes, that does conflict with the Christian worldview foundationally, and that's not fruitful or can be abused even by the Christian. We've all heard of the fire and brimstone type preaching and other fear tactics in the church, but this is the important thing. We live in a church age that has diluted God's judgment of sin. And so, Stephen, what the line you quoted, you know, flee from the wrath to come. When's the last time any of us have ever heard that in a sermon? It's the kind of thing you hear from like street preachers. It's not very common in churches, or if it, if it is uh, said, it, it's couched in a lot of disclaimers and concession stands. So, you know, today we're going to be making the case that not all scary stories nor appeals to fear are wrong. In fact, these kind of stories may be necessary for the Christian. I think necessary is a good word there. Zach, you said earlier that uh, folks who've had a traumatic childhood may be drawn to these kinds of stories. It occurs to me that if you grew up, I'm using a little metaphor here, if you grew up in a haunted house, uh, you may not see the appeal uh, in you know, a fictional haunted house where people you know, put on zombie costumes and try to scare you uh, from the corner. I may get that people may want to avoid then the genre or associate that with something evil because that's what they have experienced. However, what if you grew up in a very nice environment, uh, a very cheerful, sentimental environment with a lot of horror elements, maybe even something darker like abuse or spiritual abuse, uh, mean relatives, you never know, like where everybody just pretended that everything was nice and not horrible at all. Uh, In that case, I think it makes sense that you would be drawn to a story with horror elements or a darker story because it gives you a language to express those fears. It puts them on screen and it says, no, this is scary. This is properly labeled. uh, And here may even be some solutions uh, to combat or run away from that fear. I I think that you're absolutely right then that horror can be a response to legitimate trauma. Uh, Just trying to give a name to it, trying to classify it, and then hopefully not uh, wallowing in it, uh, not staying there. Uh, It ought to be a transition to something like a happy or healing ending. Uh, That's why I prefer horror as a seasoning, because in that case, the story is not so much about the horror itself. It's about victory over the darkness. And I think that's why we try to approach this issue proactively, like other episodes in the Fiction's Chief End series. We're not just trying to fix a problem. Uh, We're not just trying to get the bad guys, those bad legalistic Christians who are trying to keep you from something. Uh, We're trying to get through all of that, bypass that, and go back to the chief end of fiction, which is not to fix a problem, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Horror as a genre may be a way that you do that. I think, though, I have seen from some Christians, uh, some Christian fans, uh, regardless of whether they've had that traumatic backstory, I think that they see something like a dark story or other elements in the story like violence or swearing or something. You do see this, Zach, right? This issue of people wanting to use their fandom as a way to rile others. Uh, They kind of have this... uh, uh, this boisterous attitude of, man, if only Ann Gertrude knew that I was watching The Walking Dead on TV, you know, mm-hmm. and that to me strikes me as uh, at best a transition stage. Uh, I don't think that it's healthy to get into that uh, habit of trying to use dark stories or any stories to get at somebody in real life or in your imagination. Stories, then you've reduced them to uh, your favorite word for them, Zach, being sarcastic. You've made the story into a tool yeah. to get at somebody, you know, yeah. rather than a gift that God has given you to glorify him, to enjoy him, in a sense. Uh, that's what we're all about at Lorehaven. So I, I think in this episode, just be aware, we are going to be aware of that notion, but we're going to ignore that notion. Uh, horror is not 
a tool we use to get at people. It is a gift that we use to exalt Jesus. If nothing else, the darkness we see in a horror story, which reflects the darkness that exists in reality, uh, ought to drive us not further into the darkness because it's so dark and we like the drama and we like the buzz that we get uh, from feeling really scared. We want to respond to that by running into the light of Christ. Before we begin our three-chapter exploration of horror, let's cover our cover sponsor for this episode, Oasis Family Media. This week's episode is sponsored in part by them as publishers of the Rabbit Room Press audiobooks. This surprised me because Oasis, apparently, you can just find them everywhere now making great audiobooks from fantastic publishers of stories such as Henry and the Chalk Dragon and The Door on Half Bald Hill. Coming soon, they're working on the book Galahad. These and other great titles by Oasis are available wherever audiobooks can be purchased or streamed. See you all at Hutchmoot this weekend. Apparently that's going on with the Rabbit Room. Uh, That's the uh, Andrew Peterson, the Peterson brothers doing not just music, but also amazing stories as well. So many of these stories coming up. And it's great to know that we can get them not only in book form, but in audio form. Get the links for Henry and the Chalk Dragon, as well as the door on Half Bald Hill in our show notes for this episode 132. Those are the audiobooks from Oasis Family Media, and you can also go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Okay, let's move into chapter one of this dark story. Horror stories are God's idea. And I'm basing this uh, chapter on Isaiah 28, 19, which says, only terror will cause you to understand the message. So let's start with Genesis 3. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. We start with the fall of man. And this saga has a lot of horror elements throughout. There's a hidden adversary luring people to their doom, a curse which brings death, banishment from paradise to ruin, a supernatural being with a flaming sword, and finally a murder. And one of the very first things God spoke to human beings was a horror story. So not only are we seeing horror play out in real human drama, but there is actually a fictional story that God tells to a human being. And it happens while Cain is nursing his hatred for his brother Abel And God, of course, knowing his thoughts, appears to him and speaks and says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And, you know, Stephen, this is very much like uh, the movie um, A Quiet Place, where there's these creatures stalking these families and you have to be extremely quiet or else they'll find you out and then they'll just come in and just ravage your place and just kill everyone. And, you know, that's kind of the word picture that comes to my mind. Uh, But it's just incredible to think that just before that very first homicide, the first crime of the Bible, God told a story to a would-be sinner to try to persuade him out of his sin. I think that this just now occurs to me that Adam and Eve and their sons, uh, starting off in the wasteland, thrown out of the Garden of Eden, would have already had this real-life horror story in the back of their imaginations because somewhere out there is a serpent this creature who talks when animals ought not talk at least as far as we know uh, they're not not supposed to talk in the garden of eden so you've got this real life horror monster going on you've got this fall from paradise into sin 
So I can imagine then the imagery that might have come into Cain's mind when God compared sin to some kind of monster crouching at your door. Like, oh, I think I know. Like my parents told me about the serpent in the garden. They described what it looked like and they described what it said. Like he would have had a touch point to understand the type of uh, creature that God was portraying there. Yeah, and we know that you know the animal kingdom had become cursed. God had already killed two animals to provide skins for them. I don't think at this time they were meat eaters. I think they were still plant eaters, but who knows if they were having to battle ferocious creatures. The uh, saber-toothed tiger was still alive back then, and uh, if you're Ken Ham, um, I'm not trying to make fun of Ken Ham, but you know dinosaurs roam the earth dinosaurs absolutely roam the earth yeah it could be <laughs> sin is crouching sin could have been a dragon for all we know there you go could i mean have been serpents a, don't uh, velociraptor crouch, but dragons yeah. could velociraptors <laughs> totally could yeah yeah i think you're right not just the serpent out in the garden somewhere the lost garden uh over the mountains someplace but some other creature Cain would have had many examples to draw from many scary examples in the newly wild corrupt creation the, the fact that they saw this angel with this flaming sword guarding the garden uh, i wonder if they ever tried to sneak back in and uh had to deal with that or maybe some of their kids you know who knows they, they they i'm sure they had a lot of encounters that we haven't learned about but uh yeah they, they saw some truly scary things and and tr- you know getting kicked out of paradise is itself a horror story <laughs> like they never saw the redemption that god promised where he said uh you know, your seed will be at war with his seed and to the serpent and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You know, the, the promise of the Messiah, Adam and Eve never saw that. And so, you know, we, we talked earlier about a lot of secular horror is nihilistic. There's no hope. Uh, there's no happy end to the story. It's just terrifying. Well, you know, that was kind of true for Adam and Eve. Like they had this promise, but they never got to see that promise. And I think that's true for a lot of the uh, patriarchs of the Old Testament, Cain couldn't see sin. He, he didn't understand its presence. And so God made it very real and very physical. Like this is what sin is. It's like a monster outside your house. Um, as we go through the Bible though, we we see lots of other forms that horror takes. So we've talked about stories like this one, and we'll, we'll get to some more stories later. We get to some of the language that's used. So Jesus talks about hell, where a place where their worm will never die. Uh, now that is an interesting, you know, language that this idea of, you know, immediately I think of, of course, Dune, <laughs> like this giant sandworm that's uh, stalking you and haunting you and, and devouring you and, and just devouring entire, you know, what was the, uh, the spice mining machine or whatever, just this giant thing or this idea of decay that's never going to stop. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about hell as a place where people continue to sin. <laughs> it's not like. You get to hell and you're like, whoops, I wish I hadn't sinned so much. Uh, no, it's, it's for people that love their sin and, and they continue in their sin and they continue to decay spiritually. Uh, at least that, that's, that's how I think that uh, phrase means. I know that it's connected to the sort of the, uh, the trash dump or whatever of the ancient world, which was outside the city. And it was this place of just continual rot. Uh, like a landfill. Is that is that about right for that phrase? Or do you know any more about that? I'm thinking about, is that I'm, I'm seeing an image in my head of a biblical footnote that says Gehenna, something like that. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, there's many images that God uses, many, many uh, gross images to describe hell. 
And I think, I think that goes back to what I mentioned earlier is that the flee from the wrath to come and the idea of hell and judgment and God's wrath, this unending torture, that is a horror story. Now, the Bible itself, I don't think you could say that it is a horror story, but sure. if you are outside of Christ, then yes, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and absolutely, I am perfectly fine to some extent uh, with using those images, those warnings of horror and darkness to, in a sense, scare people into Christ. Now, I don't want to get into the routine of that. Like you need to run to Christ and be saved because you love Christ. You love him more than your sin, or you want to love him more than you, your sin. But that's going to involve some horror, at least the seasoning of horror. It's going to be there. And that's why I think it's important to see that horror is a part of, but not the sum total of scripture, just like you were saying. Yeah, it's the seasoning. Uh, you know, I just, I want to actually want to park on that for a second. There's a debate among Christians of how do you actually come to Christ? Do you come to Christ because you're afraid of judgment or because you love Christ and hate your sin? Yes. And, and at what point are answer. you, yeah. And at what point is that an action you take? At what point is that a action that the Holy Spirit is prompting you and regenerating you to take? Anyway, just to acknowledge that there's a lot of <laughs> disagreement, I guess, or friendly disagreement about how that process works. And, but, you know, I, I've definitely heard evangelist preachers, whoever say that, you know, all we understand as a non-Christian is fear. <laughs> like we, we are always fleeing things that scare us and we're, we're motivated by self-preservation. And so that's why when, when Jesus talks about when, uh, when the son of man is lifted up and all who look on him will be healed. And he's referencing in Exodus, one of the plagues were, or not, sorry, not the plague, but where the Israelites were being haunted by these uh, serpents. These Another snakes. horror story, by yes. the way. Yes. Yep. Serpents in the desert. They had their own sandworms going on. And then Moses put one on a stick to hold up. And whenever anyone looked on that, they were healed of their wounds. And so Jesus was invoking that. It's, it's odd in a way. It's like <laughs> this real life horror story happening. And th there is a way to escape it. And that's, and it's by looking on this, essentially a crucifix. And, and Jesus is saying, like, I am that true, I don't know, stick or whatever that you hold up in the air that people oh, look at. Yeah. yeah. I am that, yeah. I'm the true representation of that symbol or fulfillment, I should say. Yeah. So he, he's invoking people's sense of self-preservation there. And I think that's what the horror seasoning does best. Yeah. As we record, there's a lot of hurricane damage in the state of Florida and many other regions uh, in uh, the United States after Hurricane Ian hit. And that makes me think there's a lot of people in need of rescue. Uh, if the rescue crew arrives, are they going to cling to them out of love for the rescue crew or out of fear of rising waters or uh, starvation after the power is out and all your food's gone bad? I think, again, the answer is yes. Uh, there, there doesn't necessarily need to be a divide between the two. Now, if you live the rest of your life just afraid that the hurricane's going to come get you, you may have an issue with that. Uh, it, there needs to be then a relationship with your rescuer. And of course, there the metaphor breaks down. The point being is that horror was a temporary means to push you into the arms of rescue. Uh, from mm -hmm. there, then it ought to become a relationship with Christ rather than just constant fear of hell. You're motivated now more by love and joy and worship than out of fear of the darkness. That actually reminded me back in 2013, my church did a like a service trip up to Moore, Oklahoma, which had just had this monster of a tornado that, I mean, literally just carved a mile wide path through that town and, and just wow. swept everything up like, I mean, like a shovel. 
And I met so many people there that said, oh yes, our, our weatherman, local weatherman, who's really good at predicting this stuff. He came on the news and said, if you are above ground, you will not survive. And I heard that quoted from so many people and I'm like, what a powerful thing to say. And he's telling them a horror story. And it was very true. People either had to get below ground in their shelters or leave town. Uh, one person we talked to, they hid themselves and their grandkids inside their chimney, like their fireplace. And uh, that was the only thing that survived uh, in their house. Literally, it was everything else was gone. But it was that horror story that he told them, which saved their life. And again, that's a, a good use of horror there. Continuing back in our, our series, what horror do we find in the Bible? Another type of horror we see are dreams that people are given. A Pharaoh was given several dreams that terrified him. This is uh, Pharaoh in the time of Joseph. I'm referring to where he was given uh, dreams that predicted the famine. And, you know, it was very bizarre dreams. These cows that eat other cows, you know, representing the seven years of famine, eating up the seven years of plenty. And man, he was really disturbed by this. And he was also disturbed that no one could tell him what it meant until Daniel came along. Uh, similarly, Pilate's wife, Pontius Pilate going into the New Testament, uh, she had this nightmare that made her warn her, try to warn her husband away from punishing Jesus. I've often thought about that, Stephen. Isn't that interesting? Who gave her that dream? Was that a dream inspired by God or by Satan? Because it was God's will to crush him. Was this a dream from Satan that was trying to dissuade her? Or was it from God kind of telling Pilate not to have anything to do with this? Let let it play out, but you know, wash your hands of it. I, it's weird to think about that one. Right. We need to circle back to this one with like the weird stories of Easter podcast episode that we haven't <laughs> yet planned, you know, not to mention that kind of pre-resurrection uh, event that went on as described in the Gospel of Matthew after Christ's death. There's some weird stuff going on there. Not yeah. horror stories, just strange. Like the, the narrative doesn't say where this dream came from. I think right. it's just, I, I think it's whatever story that God was working in uh, Mrs. Pilate's life uh, that I'd like to think led to her conversion later on, because the fact is she didn't dream anything inaccurate. Christ was really innocent yes. uh, and should not, in a sense, should not have been put to death. Who knows where her story went there? But uh, it's a, one of the few examples in scripture you find of someone actually saying, I had a nightmare. Uh, this is something that's as old as humanity itself. Yeah. Uh, another type of horror that we see are in visions that people have. Daniel had a lot of visions about the future that were terrifying to him. Uh, you know, these giant uh, statues, these uh, strange beasts, these just amazing events that were too much to take in. Uh, and it was hard for him to understand what the meaning is. Then we flip over to Revelation and we see the visions that the Apostle John has. And Obviously, Christians debate all of this. Is it all metaphor? Is it just a literal, like he's seeing the future? Of course, he uses a lot of metaphorical language, the beast rising out of the sea. Um, that, that's a terrifying event there. Then we see real events that have horror elements, the 10 plagues that hit Egypt in the time of Moses. And you know, those plagues were certainly horrifying from the perspective of the Egyptians, especially those that maybe not. <laughs> don't know what's going on with Moses and Pharaoh. They're like, why are all these frogs in my house now? And why did, why do all of us have boils on us? And what's this hail coming? And then now why is, why are all of our firstborn dead? 
And I think the Prince of Egypt handles that so well uh, in portraying that, that there's just this, like this, almost like this mist that's going through all of these houses, but then passing over the, the Jewish houses with the blood of the lamb and it just kind of going in and just, just quickly sweeping through. And man, that is terrifying to think of that, that someone could invade your house. I mean, if there's one recurring nightmare I have, Stephen, it's that someone's trying to break into my house uh, and I'm, I'm trying to keep the door shut and keep them out. So imagine this, that you've locked your doors at night and yet somehow something came in and took away your child and not just your child, but everyone else's firstborn that you know. From their perspective, that's terrifying and, and they're not really sure what to make of it. But the interesting thing is when the Israelites flee Egypt, there were a number of Egyptians that came with them. You know, the true life horror that they experienced pointed them towards the right way, which was follow this God, leave the Egyptian gods behind, follow the real God. This whole event is what allowed the Israelites to flee. Um, we see some other horror in, in some of the bizarre miracles. Uh, you know, you, you've touched on that a little bit, uh, but there are a lot of um, just bizarre things that happen uh, in the Bible. Uh, another event I want to talk about is when an angel destroys uh, was it 185,000 Assyrians. The angel of death. Isn't that the yeah. phrase that's used there? Now, this is not so. a demon, but an, an, an angel appointed by God to kill. Uh, I actually yeah. remember, Zach, there was an animated series in the 80s I've mentioned before called Superbook. Mm. And uh, the final episode of, uh, there was two series they did, or two seasons, the final episode, the second one, dealt with that narrative. And they went full on into the horror. They just showed like this shroud drape across the screen and they made this little sound like, Wah! and you hear all these people screaming in the night. And then, of course, you wake up in the morning like this series did not sugarcoat the scripture. Uh, and you see just all these dead bodies of the Assyrian army uh, laying out in the ground. I mean, it wasn't violent. Like You didn't see blood or anything, but you knew just exactly what had happened. And the narrator reinforced it. That's in the Bible, folks. And it's part of redemptive history. It's part of God's story helping, the, uh, helping his people, you know, his covenant people, Israel. Uh, this is something that God can do. That's his prerogative. But it is something that's in there. And it is something that Christians must reckon with. Yeah, this is 2 Kings 19, 35, and it, yeah, it says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people, I assume this means the people that survived, when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So again, it's that scene that's portrayed in the Prince of Egypt. It's just this silent assassin of the angel of death. It didn't wake anyone up. That's the amazing thing. It was just totally quiet. Imagine you wake up the next morning, everywhere around you, it's just dead bodies. That's terrifying. This served a holy purpose. This is what led to victory for the Israelites and then uh, everything that happens after that. But th this wasn't simply violence for the sake of violence, death for the sake of death. There was a holy purpose to all of this. A similar way we see when David had the ark moved, and I just lost the guy's name, reaches over to steady the ark. He touches it because it was on a, uh, you know, a wagon instead of how they were supposed to carry it. And then the angel strikes him dead. <laughs> and David's really upset about this, but it leads him to worship because he's like, wow, okay, I forgot how holy of a God we serve. And I was taking him way too lightly. It instilled this holy fear. 
And that fear is a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes I forget that God himself is portrayed as a horror monster, uh, which shouldn't be too troublesome to us. Like we like stories about superheroes, good guys who work in the shadows and who are an avenging force uh, against evildoers like Batman, of course, being the classic example. In most portrayals, he is a flawed but good guy. And yet he's also kind of a horror monster sometimes. In this case, uh, Uzzah. Uh, transgresses uh he somehow as several commentaries say uh, he somehow thought that the ark falling in the dirt uh, would make it less holy than if he touched it to keep it on the cart which is just crazy human presumption there and then i think the narrative says that god himself kills him with fire from heaven so there's not even an intermediary like an angel like there is for slaying the assyrian soldiers earlier in uh, israel's history uh, this is just god's automatic Mm -hmm. you're done uh you are lit up and you're gone that's uh that's horrible another uh instance of instant death was king herod in acts 12 when uh, he's giving an announcement and everyone says oh this is the voice of a god not of a man and he's like yeah i kind of like that (laughs) and he doesn't uh push back on that and then it says in verse 23 at once at once an angel of the lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> so, whoa, there's that worm again that just shows up and just devours someone, or or he died, and then all of a sudden these worms come up and take out his uh, dead body. I, again, I don't exactly know what happens there, but whoa, that you know that was terrifying to everyone that was there. And again, it's it's that picture of God is is not someone you mess with. He's not someone that you usurp. Another way that this happens, but in a little bit more positive way, I guess you could say, is when Jesus and the disciples are on the boat, and then all of a sudden a storm comes up. He's asleep, and they wake him up and said, won't you save us? And he says, don't you have any faith? And then he just says, be still. And then the storm completely stops, and it's completely silent. And that act of him calming the storm is more terrifying to the disciples than the storm itself. Now think about this. These disciples have grown up as fishermen. They've seen all kinds of storms. They've been through their share of very terrifying, you know, hurricanes, uh, as we've mentioned. And now they've encountered something even more terrifying. It's a man that is more powerful than the most powerful storm. Uh, So going back to our kind of foundational verse here, only terror will cause you to understand the message. Uh, Sometimes it takes these terrifying encounters to understand who God is and what his word means. Now, there's also terrifying stories that are told in the Bible. Jesus tells the story of the man who goes to the wedding and he's not dressed properly and he's he's called out. It's kind of a weird story. Oh, yeah. There's magic realism there. Yeah. It's, it's probably the most magic realism-ish of the parables. You've got this sudden weird intrusion of yes. where this guy actually gets sent. And, and then he gets thrown into outer darkness. <laughs> suddenly outer darkness because reasons yeah it it has the feel of those those dreams you've had that just something really random will happen that moment where everyone recognizes that he wasn't you know supposed to be there has that feeling of inception where all of a sudden all the um the subconscious uh portrayals of people i forget what the the projections they all turn around and look at you know the guy or, or the girl they're like you don't belong here that's a pretty terrifying parable. The parable of the ten virgins 
is, is has a horror element where some of them are prepared to be taken by the bridegroom and, and some aren't because they didn't have enough oil in their lanterns. Uh, of course, we've talked about the, you know, the language of Gehenna. Jesus talked about hell quite a bit uh, directly, but you know, it's these stories that he told of horrifying events that are very interesting to me. Can you think of any other ones, Stephen, that he told? Of course, there's the rich men in Lazarus, where you literally have this possibly fictional, possibly real, uh, not exactly sure story of a rich man who goes to Sheol. Uh, and at least in uh, Jesus's portrayal here, there's a vast gulf fixed between the light side and the dark side of Sheol. There's the good side, which is Abraham's bosom, where uh, the poor man Lazarus goes. And then there's the dark side uh, where the rich man goes and he's suffering. And it's just unquestioned that he's going to go to the bad parts of Sheol, the grave, uh, sometimes translated in the Bible. Uh, was there some shift in the afterlife status after Christ's uh, death and resurrection? Uh, that's for another episode. But in this case, it is pretty horrible uh, that Abraham is just telling the rich guy, I'm sorry, you know, this is a you problem. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Like we, we can't even send Lazarus back to warn your brothers. Like everything's kind of locked in. You used up your chances, rich man. That's another one of Christ's warnings about hell, uh, in that case, in parable form, that is very sobering, uh, very, very scary. Uh, Jesus was not, in that case, a seeker-sensitive preacher uh, trying to hide the bad parts of the message, uh, lest he offend uh, some delicate sensibilities. Uh, he was just going to go there. In that case, uh, Christ was quite the pragmatist, and I think we should learn something from his example. You know, and when Jesus said in John 6, uh, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. And this really offended all the Jews that were fond. This is right after he fed the 5,000 and they all left. And then he said to his disciples, are you also going to leave? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And I've always loved that verse because there's a lot of things I don't understand that have happened in my life. And, and then I just keep going back to where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to follow? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Yes, some of the words he said are hard. Some are, are scary. Some don't make sense to me, but his words have given me life. And that, that's what's most important. It's interesting, though, Stephen, that, um, uh, that thing he says about you have to eat my flesh. In the um, early centuries of the, the church, uh, a lot of the, the Romans had no clue what Christians did. And they actually thought Christians were cannibals because of that verse. <laughs> they thought that the communion was some kind of cannibalistic ceremony. And so it's very interesting to me that Jesus allowed himself and his church to be misunderstood. And he allowed people to leave because the stories he told were too grotesque or scary. Uh, it's like you said, he wasn't seeker sensitive. <laughs> He was willing to let people walk away uh, by telling them the plain and sometimes horrible truth. That is something I think about a lot. When do I fudge when I communicate the gospel by not telling a, the full picture of what God's wrath looks like? Back to that verse you said, flee from the wrath to come. That's a very active thing that we are told to do, to flee. From wrath, we're also told to flee from temptation. Now, interestingly, it says resist the devil. It doesn't say flee from the devil, which is a little bit different when it comes to uh, horror movies about demons and such. But then we look at possibly the most horrifying thing of all, which is the crucifixion. This is where we see a truly innocent person go through 
complete body horror and torture and then be abandoned by everyone, including God the Father. This has every scary element that you can think of in most horror movies. And and when it's portrayed in film, it's R-rated. You know, the Passion of the Christ was so intense. I remember watching that and just, I just wept like a baby. Like it was so overwhelming to see that just visually like, whoa, this is not a safe Christian film. This is not a vid angel, <laughs> uh, pure flicks, whatever, uh, family friendly kind of story. Uh, this is an intense, true story. But even as that's retold, it is uh, very overwhelming. And going back to one other thing, we talked about the plagues that happened in Egypt. All of those plagues were first communicated as stories. And each time, Pharaoh didn't believe that they were really going to happen. He just thought, oh, you're just making this up. Uh, whatever. This is some metaphor. It's like, no, these are real things that are going to happen. I'm telling you the future. The, the horror elements, the, the horror stories, whether fictional or true, they're, we're always meant to pay careful attention to them. Amen to that. We keep referencing that verse, flee from the wrath to come. It's quoted, of course, in a Pilgrim's Progress, the phrase that Christian reads uh, in order to flee from the city of destruction. It actually comes from Matthew 3, 7 in the King James Version. It's part of what John the Baptist, uh, who also preached some horrible warnings uh, against the people as the prophesied forerunner to Christ. Uh, in Matthew 3, 7, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's almost a, uh, almost a snarky call out there uh, to them, almost like he's mocking them uh, for coming to him, probably because he knows that they're just showing up to see the show and not actually wanting to flee from the wrath to come. But that is a warning you get in Scripture, and of course it is fulfilled uh, in the death of Jesus Christ. That is the wrath to come. For the Christian, it has been poured out on Jesus. And so uh, you get what we've been talking about at the end of our uh, Hobbit book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. You get this you catastrophe. It has been a horror story, uh, but now all of that horror, the wrath of God's judgment has been poured onto Christ. He has suffered the horror so that we no longer need to suffer it for eternity. He has subverted uh, the doom genre there and actually turned it into a happy ending but we still have some horrible things to go through because that redemption is not quite complete uh, over the creation itself. And so we still have some horrors and some scary monsters to deal with uh, in the world as it is now. Let's pause for a moment, catch our breath, and realize that Christians make amazing stories with horror elements in them. Some spooky elements for spooky season in our second sponsor. This is Wraithwood. What a great horror-ish title there by Alyssa Rowett from Mountain Brook Fire Publishers. Here's the description. In the Realm Award-winning novel Wraithwood by Alyssa Rowett, Arthurian legend is far from dead. Brinny has always lived a quiet life under the watchful eye of her hovering mother until she's sent off for the summer to live with an uncle she didn't know she had. Wraithwood Estate, her uncle's creepy old mansion, holds as many secrets as the man himself. As unnatural events take place and Brinny hears whispers of a hidden war, she must unravel the truth about her family's mysterious past if she wants to survive. Wraithwood by Alyssa Rode is available wherever books are sold. See the links in the show notes for episode 132 or go find more at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Okay, let's move into chapter two. 
horror brings the hidden dangers of sin to light. And the key verse here is Exodus 20:20. The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. We've talked about how we live in a church age where man's sin and God's wrath are minimized. Now compare this to the period of the Great Awakening, where we get a lot of fire and brimstone preaching, but then we get uh, written stories like sinners in the hands of an angry God. I was just thinking of that one. <laughs> Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a thin floor. That's oh, a man. paraphrase, you know, uh, sin is spiders and ghouls. And I mean, Jonathan Edwards took his people through uh, this haunted house of God's horrors awaiting after death and scared a lot of people into the loving embrace of Christ. And we are literally in America still feeling the effects of sermons like that one today. Yeah, I've heard stories of, uh, you know, people listening to this and just kind of falling over like in the in the pew and just like, what? You know, just just so overwhelmed emotionally by this. This was a Calvinist with feelings, folks. Uh, He was puritanical. (laughs) And yet they were having this experience like a Benny Hinn healing revival. (laughs) Am I falling down in the aisles weeping? Like, save me, save me. And yeah. I think that that's just completely based and wholesome. <laughs> if they're literally legitimately converting, uh, then, you know, maybe there is some overdone passions, some emotions going on, but kind of like what you said earlier, Zach, apparently God does not seem as squeamish as we can be about his mm. followers being misunderstood by the world. You know, Stephen, interestingly, I read that story in my 10th grade English class. We were studying different periods of American literature, and that was a pretty pivotal one for that period of time. I was not a Christian then, but I became a Christian at the end of that year at the Young Life Camp, and I think that story very much prepared me for that because I had never heard anything in any church about God's wrath and hell and judgment, and man, that really got my attention. And later on that year, it it just came back to mind when I kind of walked through Romans 3 and all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. and the wages of sin is death. And it's like, whoa, now I know what this uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, story is talking about. But yeah, today there are so many churches and even networks of churches that are ignoring, excusing, or approving of sin. And it's just totally uh, ravaging us and it's eating away at the church. And now I'm not going to get into liberal conservative examples of this because you can probably find it anywhere you look, but it's, it's a big problem. And so horror stories, perhaps like Jonathan Edwards or other horror stories, are a potential blessing from God to shock us awake. Uh, Horror warns us of the truly horrific consequences of sin. You know, in this age of confusion and relativism, horror can light a clear beacon of moral truth. So, But again, I want to go back to the Bible where this was done. Now, what I want to do here, this is kind of an interesting thing that came about in my study. There are true stories that happen in the Bible, but then they were turned into stories that people told each other, and it was those stories that had power. So the first example is Acts 5, 1 through 11. This is, I'm just going to summarize, this is when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about the price that they had sold their property for to donate to the this new church, trying to keep some of the money for themselves, but say that they... Uh, didn't have that much money. And, and the, the issue wasn't that they kept some of the money. The issue was that they lied about it because they wanted a certain reputation. And they both instantly died <laughs> when they were caught because somehow the apostle Peter knew supernaturally that they were lying. 
and that this was going to be a very dangerous thing for the church. So after Ananias and Sapphira both were slain, uh, however it happened, it says, then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. And so that's the key verse I want to park on here for a minute. All who heard these things. It wasn't just that people witnessed this happening. You know, it wasn't just the interaction between them and, and Peter that we see or, or that matters. What matters is this story was circulating. And everyone in that early church community was like, whoa, did you hear what happened to Ananias? Yeah, did you hear what happened to Sapphira? And so that kind of holy fear rocked the church, but in a good way. It kept them from sinning. It kept them from doing the same thing. Now, why did God do that? Why did someone have an instant punishment of death? Well, one of my pastors talked about this once. He said, the wages of sin is always death. At any moment, we could die for our sins, but kind of going back to that Jonathan Edwards uh, message in Sinners in, in the Hands of an Angry God, God just holds us up. Like It's just his will that holds us up that keeps us from being killed for our sin. Now, the real interesting question to ask yourself is, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? Were they actually born again? Because if they weren't born again, then it's kind of easier to digest this story, right? It's like, well, the wages of sin is death. They weren't covered by the blood of Christ. They're just getting God's wrath. That's when he decided to to take them. That's when he decided to pour out his wrath on them. If they were saved, man, that is scary. That is really scary. Because at any moment, any one of us that are believers, we could die for a sin. I think it was Billy Graham who once said, who, who prayed regularly, God, if I'm ever going to dishonor you, if I'm ever going to, you know, cheat on my wife or, or do something terrible with the ministry, I'd rather you just kill me than, than I dishonor you and I destroy what I've built and, you know, dishonor my family. I, I'd rather just die than continue on in that sin. And he lived a pretty long life. And so you got to wonder, like, I guess he didn't do any of those things, but that fear kept him from sinning. You know, that, that just that holy fear of at any moment, God could punish me immediately, instantly. My, my pastor has talked about this, uh, this story of like, can you imagine like someone just comes up to give an offering and then they die like right there? That would just be insane. But again, it's that, it's that story, all who heard this. All who heard these things, uh, it had an effect on them. That story is powerful. Okay, similar uh, event. This is in Acts 19. It's the seven sons of Siva, and they try to exorcise a, a demon from a man in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. So I guess they didn't really believe in Jesus. They kind of believed in Paul. I, I don't really yeah, know. They, they, they'd gotten a hold of some <laughs> spiritual warfare weapons and were eager to try them out. Hey, this seems to be yeah. working. I, I, was, uh, I was watching this Apostle Paul guy once. I was watching a movie once. And uh, somebody was using this name, and I guess it's kind of a formula to make the demons leave people alone. So let's get on this. Yeah, and so this uh, this demon wasn't having it, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, I, I know about Paul, and I know about Jesus, but who are you? <laughs> you need to read that in a demon voice, by the way. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you?" <laughs> And there's this hilarious, darkly hilarious moment yes. yeah, where the demon is just chasing them out because the demon is just tired of their shenanigans. 
Uh, and then uh, you're probably about to say that all, all the result was, of course, even more holy fear among the people. Yes. Like, well, it works for the Apostle Paul, but there's no power in just the syllables that anybody can say. There's something else going on here. Yeah. I mean, one guy overpowers seven other guys. I mean, that's incredible, like supernatural power. And yeah, said he beat them up and stripped their clothes off. Like they're running out naked, all beat up. It is funny. It's, it's crazy, but it's funny. And yes, the, the key phrase here is when this became known. Yeah. The story spread. Did you hear about what happened to the sons of Skiva? Um, their business is over. <laughs> There's kind of this traveling exorcism road show, uh, has been, uh, shuttered. Yep. And then directly as a result of this in verse 19, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So this story spread around this area in Ephesus and people that were practicing the occult were like, you know what? I think I'm done with this. Uh, now that I see that there is really crazy supernatural power and there's demons and I don't want to mess with this anymore. I heard this story. Holy cow. Like I am out. I'm done. Here's all my books. Throw them in the bonfire. And again, we're, we're talking about occult books, not fiction books here. So that story led people to repentance. Stories are powerful. Last uh, passage I want to talk about is Luke 18. Another demonic encounter in and of itself, a terrifying encounter. This is the, um, the demon possessed man that, uh, you know, also naked demons have a thing with, with nakedness, I guess. I don't know. You know, he was in chains. Like he broke these heavy chains. He was, he slept in the graveyard. Like no one wanted this guy around. He was, oh, he's a total horror movie monster there. This guy. Absolutely. Yeah. And what is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion. He said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged. And how many heavy metal songs and horror movies have (laughs) borrowed from this trope? Right. So Jesus exercises these demons. And then for some reason, they go and possess this herd of pigs, which then drown themselves. And then the story spreads. Those who had seen it told them. Key phrase told them. So the story of this exorcism and these demon possessed pigs. That story circulated around and everyone learned about Christ through this. It's like crazy event after crazy event. And I can't make sense of it myself. Like how did demons possess pigs and and why? And, And why did Jesus do that? It's very bizarre. But the really interesting thing in this is that what really scared people the most, and this was the part of the story I think was the most powerful is that they all talk about this man sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. So kind of like when Jesus calmed the storm, and that was more terrifying to the disciples, this formerly crazy, insane, violent, naked man being dressed and in his right mind, that was more terrifying to people because they had written this guy off. Oh, he's got some you know mental health condition or whatever. He's just a bad person. But Oh, wait a minute. He's normal. That means something changed dramatically. That means demons are real. Am I safe from demons or am I going to have to follow this Jesus guy? I don't know about him. He seems pretty weird. What do I do now? That dilemma came on everyone because of that story that was spreading around. 
we see again, stories have this incredible power to lead people to repentance, to lead people to Christ, to give them a holy fear of the supernatural. I say today, we need more of these stories because we live in a completely demystified, materialistic, secular, overly scientistic, (laughs) not, not, not scientific, but scientistic where we kind of worship the scientific process to explain everything. Uh, And really what it is, you know, when people say follow the science, they're really saying follow the pseudoscience, like worship the science. Again, I'm not anti-science, but science has its place and it's not God. So these supernatural encounters were, were powerful in themselves, but they had a secondary effect on people who merely heard the story. They weren't there. They didn't see anything, but they hear the story and they're like, my goodness, I need to repent. I need to do something. Yeah. It's spreading by reliable witnesses. And I think this goes back to the slogan that we mentioned at the top of the show is that dark stories should drive us toward the light of Christ. Uh, That's the effect that these stories apparently have. These true life stories had in their immediate settings with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, as well as the demon possessed man in uh, Christ's ministry. Uh, as well as the sons of Sceva getting the uh, nonsense beat out of them uh, by a demon who wasn't having uh, any of that anymore. This makes people, should make people, go toward the light. Uh, Whereas if you felt comfortable with the darkness, if you're like, yeah, you know, that's the demon-possessed guy, that's fine, we're just going to ignore him. If somebody gets too comfortable with that, then I think you are on the way to becoming yourself a horror monster. You're trying to deal with the shadows by living in them and deciding they're not going to scare you anymore. This is the new normal, you say to yourself. But then along comes Christ, or along come his apostles, along comes the gospel with true power to drive away the shadows. If you're scared more by that than you are by the shadows themselves, then I'm afraid you yourself have become, or are on the way to becoming, a horror monster. Uh, If you're not willing to embrace the light, then the light of Christ is not in you, and that should scare you. Uh, Because now you're trying to cope with the darkness uh, by becoming the darkness, uh, not trying to enjoy the horror story uh, for the virtues that it drives you toward. And that that is a very sobering, implicit warning there. Going from there to horror stories that we read and that we watch and that we hear about today, I I think that uh, modern horror stories can have a similar effect on us because they show us what true evil looks like. You know, people heard these stories in Acts and in Luke. They heard these stories of demons and just just death and God's judgment and wrath. And that story has power to remind us of what what reality is. And uh, horror stories today that tell us of monsters and uh, you know demons, even you know, this can illuminate the invisible monsters that are in our lives or and that we don't always see clearly. Um, Stranger Things four did this fantastically. Uh, it was a very clear portrayal of the sinful human tendencies of guilt mongering and emotional mani- manipulation. It was a monster that stalked people and used their guilt to freeze them and entrap them and destroy them. Uh, you know, the entire social movements are being built on this kind of manipulative approach. And we've probably all heard of just manipulative people who just uh, ruin other people through their narcissism or their uh, sociopathic tendencies. And so that, that kind of sinfulness, it, it's sometimes hard to detect in ourselves or in others. And stories like this really bring that to light. You know, you mentioned Attack on Titan. 
there was different kinds of horror in that movie. There was the monsters, but then there's sort of the, the overarching world, which spoilers, I won't go into, uh, but it represents all these different kinds of modern day monsters. And, you know, Stephen, I, I think that we're living in an age right now where a lot of things that cultural conservatives have feared are coming true in real life. And I keep wondering if horror itself is going to become more attractive to conservatives, which again, it would be interesting because as we've talked about earlier, a lot of conservative Christians have stayed away from horror, but you know, horror is just simply, it resonates with our fears that we already have. A lot of, you know, cultural critics have said, look, uh, there's all this postmodernism creeping in. There's this neo-Marxism kind of taking over. And so I think horror is a good way to express those fears or sort of portray what we are worried about. And it, and it draws this sharp line between right and wrong and good and evil. You know, we get these uh, shockingly honest morality tells sometimes from horror. And just one final example for this section I want to give, there was a, a movie back in 2015 that came out called It Follows. And it was really this clear analogy of the dark side of the sexual revolution. And it was so powerful that defenders of the sexual revolution were freaking out. <laughs> they did not want these uh, connections to be drawn because that was their God. That was their idol. And when a lot of cultural conservatives and, and Christians were kind of pointing this out, like, hey, I think this movie really portrays what we've been saying all along about the sexual revolution. That became a really powerful language for Christians to use to say, look, sexual immorality is like the monster in this film, in this story. And, you know, you may not see the danger of uh, sexual immorality, but this movie can show it to you in a way that maybe I can't communicate. That's a rare thing, I think, nowadays. And postmodernism is just kind of blurred all these lines. So when you see this very clear delineation between the, the darkness and the light through a dark story, ironically, I, I think that's a very, very powerful thing for believers. Well, that's another reason why we're doing a Dracula book quest in the Lorehaven Guild uh, starting on Monday, October the 3rd. But if you hear this afterwards, it's not too late to join. Just subscribe free to Lorehaven. We'll send you the invitation to the Guild Castle, which is a very friendly, fantastical castle. It is not Castle Dracula, and you can come and go as you please. Uh, we're going through this Bram Stoker classic, which portrays another monster that I frankly would compare now to the ideological and other predators among us. Uh, Dracula himself is not a cartoon figure. He's not a tragic villain. He's not an anti-hero. Uh, he's certainly a dangerous, wicked, disordered, uniquely masculine predator. Uh, he attacks the image of God. He is a sensual libertine monster. He consumes the life of others for his own pleasure and to elongate his own life. This monster, I think, has even more modern meanings now when we see, uh, not just in systemic institutions and all that, but you see cultural and religious movements that are endorsing vampirism and legitimate real-life medical body horror and beyond uh, in order to become your true self. And Dracula, I suppose, if you got him in an interview with a vampire, for example... You might ask, hey, are you free, uh, Count? Uh, do you feel free? You're like, yes, of course I'm free. And he would be the freest in his own perception possible. But of course, we look at that and we go, no, 
you are enslaved to your own cravings. You are held in the bondage of sin. You are undead spiritually and physically. And that's why I love this story. It does not hold back. Uh, this is a monster. He has a, he has a parody of friendship. He has a parody of marriage. Uh, he's a parody of the whole idea of, as you mentioned earlier, Zach, you know, Christians symbolically, I believe, uh, eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, Christ says to his people out of love and sacrifice, this is my body. A predator like Count Dracula creeps up on you in the night, hypnotizes you, and then says in your ear before he drinks your blood, this is my body. Uh, and it's absolutely satanic. Uh, it is about consumption rather than giving. I think that makes the vampire, as uh, Bram Stoker has reinterpreted it here, I think the classic horror monster to describe uh, the poisonous corruption of sin and how it attacks the very image of God. So we've talked a few times about the quote uh, borrowed for Pilgrim's Progress, flee from the wrath to come, which has plenty of horror elements in there. Uh, Apollyon, boss fight anyone? Valley of the Shadow of Death anyone? That was basically John Bunyan's Puritan haunted house there uh, in the 17th century, which leads me to our third sponsor for this episode, the Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded. It's a new story from David Umstadt. It's a Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, it's a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. The sponsor says it's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast now you can listen to on your podcast app you're using. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can find that link in our show notes for this episode 132 or go and see the cover for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded, which has particular nostalgic value for those who played first-person shooter games in the early 90s <laughs> and that's at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors yeah and just an endorsement for that story i've read this entire story Stephen, and it's fantastic it's really fun and it's it's great it works great as a narrative podcast well let's go into chapter three horror trains us to face real world terror so our bible verse here is proverbs nine ten: the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and so what we're going to talk about here is that there are good fears and there are bad fears. And Jesus confirmed this by saying, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. And after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. So fear itself is not a problem. It's the object of our fears that can be misplaced. It's natural and it's good to experience fear. There's a whole book written about this called The Gift of Fear, but not all fears are healthy or good for us. So this is a little bit tricky here, but horror is the exploration of fear and the possible responses. And sometimes, you know, I think the best horror is when there is something truly dangerous and that someone is afraid of, but they face that fear and they overcome it and they defeat the monster as scary as it was. I think the best ones help you realize like, oh, this was not the most horrible thing imaginable. And it leaves that space to say, there is something a lot more horrible and, or horrifying than this, which is an eternity apart from God. It's the outer darkness. It's the, uh, 
the fire that never goes out. Like that is what's truly terrifying. This monster, as scary as it is, uh, wasn't the most terrifying thing you could encounter. I have to jump in and say that when you were quoting that verse, Zach, I immediately thought, and this is incorrect, I thought, oh, who is the one who has authority to throw people into hell after death? Oh, that's Satan, and he's the horror monster. No, no, read it again, actually. The one to fear who has authority to punish people in hell after death is God himself. Again, we've got the uncomfortable reality here that God can be seen as a horror monster. Uh, but one who's utterly justified, who is in the right because he defines the right. Is Satan in hell? Yes, but he's not master of the place. Uh, the far side cartoons are not accurate. It's not the demons stabbing people with pitchforks. The demons are being stabbed by pitchforks. If there are any pitchforks at all, uh, it's demons and rebellious human sinners in hell alike. And that is cause to fear. But in that case, it's a righteous fear. Zach, have you ever heard before where people try to kind of redefine that phrase, fear of the Lord? There's a godly fear as in, you know, a respect. Like I understand that, but I think we ought not uh, neutralize the more negative connotations of that term unnecessarily, especially if someone's uh, eternal fate is in question. If they seem not to be taking God seriously, then yes, that is a real world terror that horror can train us to face even before we start talking about the more different fears uh, about fears of monsters, you know, who are not God, fears of sin and corruption and predators and such. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is our friend. We are his brothers, like we're his family. We're not just his servants, like Jesus said, because we we know what his will is. At the same time, I think the buddy Jesus thing has been way overdone. When the Apostle John saw the glorified Jesus in his vision that's recorded in Revelation, it says he fell dead at his feet. Couldn't handle seeing Jesus in his uh, glorified state. And anytime people truly encounter the glory of God in scripture, they are totally overwhelmed. It is terrifying. And there is a sense in which we should be afraid because God is the ultimate power in the universe. He's the ultimate protagonist. You know, I've heard people say that the problem with a lot of horror is that the villain is the protagonist and the villain has all the agency. And that can be a problem. Again, there are some very nihilistic horror stories, but the ones where the monster is defeated have a very important purpose. And so here's kind of my thesis. What horror can help us do is get over our fears. It it can help us get over the fears of lesser things that we shouldn't allow to rule our lives. And horror can actually rewire our brains to be less afraid of things that don't matter. Going back to our verse, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the ones that can kill your body. That's not what we should be afraid of. Horror movies help us face that fear of, yeah, slashers or you know monsters or creepy mist that kills people. But think about the age that we're living in now. We live in an age of extreme anxiety. We've just gone through a pandemic where people also fear the loss of liberties. We may be facing a global war or a civil war People are worried about an environmental collapse or a stock market collapse. Of course, we've had the war on terror for a few decades now, and there's political extremism, rise in crime, mass shootings, cancel culture mobs, mental health crisis, opioid crisis, racism, inflation, and exploitation of children. You know, and these are just the things I could think of off the top of my head, just from some recent headlines. But we also live in an age where coddling, 
is the norm. And that has made us very fragile. Psychologist Jordan Peterson talked about this at length in an article called For Our Own Good, We All Need a Glimpse of the Evil Queen. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Fascinating article about a client that he had who was completely paralyzed by the very ordinary things in life. Um, She was a vegan because she couldn't handle the sight of meat. So it wasn't even just like a health choice or, or whatever. It was seeing meat, like raw meat, made her collapse in anxiety. And she was highly medicated, completely disconnected from her life. He calls her uh, sleeping beauty because she literally slept for about 16 hours every day. And so he helped her with exposure therapy, going to a butcher shop and then going to a morgue to get over these fears that she had. And she became a totally different person. But he traces a lot of this uh, dysfunction she had to a completely coddled childhood where she said, I was the princess. Everything was just totally childproof, like not just physically, but like mentally and emotionally, everything was childproof. A lot of us are growing up with fears that just completely demoralize and destabilize us. And so horror can work like that exposure therapy. It can help us face our fears in a relatively safe environment. Uh, Peril, pain, and death, you know, those are true experiences we're going to go through. Uh, But horror gives us an opportunity to develop emotional resilience against these forces. Uh, There was a great article from National Geographic we'll link to in the notes, and it it talked about this study they did. This quote, notably, a recent study of more than 300 people shows that horror fans are faring much better psychologically than non-horror fans during the emotionally draining months of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that exposure to frightening fictions allow audiences to practice effective coping strategies that can be beneficial in real world situations, end quote. So this goes back to what I said. You know, Jesus tells us, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. He has to tell us that because that is what drives so many people. We are so driven by these fears that we have that we've listed off. And yes, the best way to, the best antidote to that is faith. The best antidote is the Holy Spirit. But horror films can play a role in this transformative process of moving us away from those fears to hopefully a fear of the Lord. So as we draw to a close, as we begin to exit this haunted house, uh, we'll have some recommendations for you in just a moment, some Christian-made horror stories from Christian novelists. We opened with that question, do Christians really need horror? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, <laughs> but also it depends. Yeah. Do you need that slasher movie from the 80s that uh, acts like there's real, really no answer uh, to this supernatural killer in a mask of some kind? No, I don't think you need that. Do you need a Stephen King novel? Do you need this particular movie or franchise? No, but do you need horror as a genre? The answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, I would say that without some measure of horror, I would dare to say you cannot be a Christian. Uh, I think, could you uh, trust in Jesus and have this vague understanding of the alternative uh, hell, separation from Christ, uh, the horror of an eternity in eternal conscious suffering without him. Some Christians disagree that that's what hell is, but I would contend that, yes, that's what hell is. And I think that without that, we do not fully comprehend the gospel. I think anybody who uh, doesn't understand that is is the exception that proves the rule. Uh, separation from Christ is itself a horror. 
and we need to know the alternative uh, that awaits us if we do not put our trust in him and want to love him more than we love the sin, more than we love the darkness. So yes, Christians do need horror. I think we do need these other fantastical genres. I think we can definitively answer that question with that corollary. Yeah, and just going through a quick list of some Christian horror that I found. This was referenced in uh, Mike Duran's book, Christian Horror. Um, we, you know, we've talked about modern examples of this, like This Present Darkness, or other books by Frank Peretti, which have horror elements. But then there's some classic literature, uh, Lilith by George MacDonald, uh, Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. It has the Unman uh, monster in it. Uh, Descent into Hell by Charles Williams, uh, who is a contemporary of Lewis. And then going back a century or so, The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. A newer one, A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor and some other books by O'Connor. And then there's a lot of newer authors that uh, we've reviewed in uh, lorehaven.com that you can check out there. Let's stop by our comm station and see what folks have thought of previous uh, podcast episodes and articles at Lorehaven. We finished our Steve Saga, our last series in the month of September. Uh, And as part of the Steve Smith episode, that was Steve 3 in episode 130 from Oasis Family Media. Uh, He mentioned some of the Oasis audio, the predecessor name there. He mentioned their uh, their origin story with a series that uh, Abigail, a hero in the Lorehaven Guild, recognized. Now, I must say I did not recognize this, but uh, she knows the name Chapel of the Air. And so she said, quote, David and Karen Maines, oh, they had a couple of excellent fantasy allegory books with gorgeous illustrations. I grew up on those. So every once in a while, you find somebody who knows uh, the company before it became cool. Uh, Great to hear that from you, Abigail. We also got a comment about our last episode, 131. That was the interview with Morgan Bussey about the Skyworld series. Uh, Teddy Deppner over in our allies there at the Realm Sphere. She's with Havoc Publishing, and she said, quote, I enjoyed Morgan's books so much. I bought the audiobook and the Kindle version and would listen on my commute and then read at night. First time I've ever done that, but it was a great way to absorb a book in my spare moments. End quote. I've done that too, Zach. I have, for example, the Dracula audiobook and the print book and the ebook now, actually. So I'm covering it uh, all the different ways in order to prepare for our book quest coming up. Uh, I did that with Dune too, actually, last year. I got the audiobook and the print book uh, or the ebook uh, combination and just switched back and forth. Uh, it's an interesting approach, but uh, it's definitely something that I enjoyed. Uh, finally, we had a lot of great feedback uh, for a uh, two part article series that I promised. Uh, we knew that uh, Anthony G. Cirillo was going to do a series about uh, The Hobbit. Well, I didn't know it was a series at the time. Uh, we went back and got a an article from the archives and adapted it for Lorehaven and then published that on Thursday and Friday. Uh, That was called Behold God's Providence in Beowulf and the Hobbit, a two-parter there. Mazer Rackham Jr. on Twitter enjoyed those articles. He said, quote, what can the tales of my pagan ancestors have to do with Jerusalem? Good piece here. He was commenting about the first one. The second one is the natural follow-up, and I can definitely recommend those for understanding the links between an ancient poem like Beowulf and how that actually inspired uh, Professor Tolkien to create The Hobbit. Well, to you, our listener, we would love to hear what are the horror stories that God has used in your life to bring light into darkness, to help you move out of your fears into a more holy fear, or what were the horror stories that you don't care for and and you just don't ever want to go back to. 
Uh, we'd love to hear any comments you have about this episode. So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or you can comment on anywhere we are found on social media. And of course, we'd love for you to join the Lorehaven Guild. Meanwhile, at Lorehaven, we'll put in links uh, to those articles about Beowulf and The Hobbit. You'll get those in our show notes. Uh, this week, too, Lord willing, uh, we'll also have a new article uh, reconstituted about my discovery of Dracula. That'll be for me, actually, uh, at lorehaven.com. And of course, as mentioned, we have started now, as you listen, that Dracula book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. You can subscribe free at lorehaven.com. Just enter your email address, and then you will not only get the updates you want from this resource, uh, but also get your exclusive invitation to the Lorehaven Guild. That's our Discord server that's invitation only. You can enter through the castle doors, come and go as you will, and explore Dracula with us. Daily chapter postings as we haunt the vampires, as we hunt them, uh, as we use the power of Christ against them. Amazing story and one of the best examples of how we can see the genre of horror as a necessary darkness that leads us back to the power of Christ. Next on Fantastical Truth, speaking of Dracula, as we start this book quest, we do plan to peer deeper into this crypt on this podcast. This year, just this year, thousands of new readers have discovered Bram Stoker's original classic novel, and they are seeing the earnest and good heroes fighting this evil vampire's predations. What have these fans thought about the story and how can we look to respect the world that we are entering as we enjoy Dracula? After many decades of showing Dracula as a cartoon or a tragic figure, how can our culture better discern this villain and his horror versus the holiness of Christ's power? Meanwhile, you may be into horror for various reasons. Maybe you're trying to understand the darkness that you've grown up with or the darkness you see in the world. Or maybe you're stuck there. Uh, maybe you got a little too into the darkness. You delved a little too deep. You studied the devil a little too much. In that case, run back to Christ. The darkness has a point. God has allowed it in his providence, not for its own sake, but for us to see the contrast with his light. He will ultimately defeat the darkness. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or pain or any of those horrible sufferings in our world. We look forward to that reality, not of darkness, but of eternal light as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>